0: I'm Lisa Bryant, I'm Leanne Gibbs,
1: and I'm Liam McNicholas,
0: and this is The Early Education Show. A fortnightly look at the policy, politics and practice of Australia's early education sector.
1: Australia's early education sector has been given a huge shake-up during the COVID-19 outbreak. The child care subsidy system was replaced with a government relief package that provided centres with 50% direct government funding and eliminated the usual gap fee paid by parents. In effect, children are now getting their early education for free, but the current funding system is short term and doesn't fit all centres. This episode, we're going to ask the question, how do we advocate for properly funded, permanent, universal and free early education after COVID-19? Now, unfortunately, Leanne can't join us tonight, so it's just uh, Lisa Bryant joining me. Lisa, how are you going? I'm good, how are you? I'm good, we were we were talking briefly before we started recording, but um, I was having a, a slight laugh and cry with my wife earlier on, because be, obviously it's great the restrictions are starting to lift, but we're seeing the difference between introverts and extroverts. So Claire and I are both excited that the restrictions are being lifted, but not so we can go and see other people, so we can go and be alone outside the house.
0: <laughs> is that
1: is that weird? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Are you finding parenting a little bit hard during this period, Liv?
1: <laughs> it's not probably not hard, just relentless. And I gotta say Claire has it worse than these, at least. Like I go I I go into work for a few hours each day just to start transitioning back. Oh, do you? Back. Yeah, just to ah. start transitioning back because well I'm in the ACT and we're just, you know, sitting pretty with zero cases for the past almost two I'll weeks. Show
0: off you're back on one, aren't you? Didn't
1: you get another one? No, well, we did, but it was because of that Ruby Princess thing. It's New South Wales' fault. I oh, no. She hadn't let them in.
0: Well, hang on. Is that New South Wales' fault or yes. is that Border Force's
1: fault? It's all New South Wales' fault, Lisa. We've been through this before. Everything's New South Wales' fault. Yeah, okay. Yeah.
0: Okay.
1: Okay. So before we get on to the main topic tonight, though, I did just want to highlight uh, a fantastic event that Lisa put on last week that Lisa both organised and presented at, and Leanne presented at, uh, the Woman and COVID Conference. So this was... Kind of like a spin-off of the early education and COVID conference you set up at incredibly short notice, Lisa. But I, this was this seemed like a huge hit. I saw both your and Leanne's sessions. They were fantastic. So a very oh, rare and uh, sincere you. well done <laughs> from, from the other. Why it, like did I... you
0: pay to, to hear us talk when you hear us talk every fortnight for free? Yeah, but I don't get to see
1: you. I, fig- I figured I was paying $10 for the privilege of seeing you.
0: Oh, God, Rather than yeah. just listening, it's to a you. lot harder to present when it's not a podcast.
1: Yes, you've got to get
0: out of your UGG boots and put some makeup on and stuff.
1: Yeah, it was very disappointing, but a good selection of uh, for, of drops you had available on your on your uh, session as well, Lisa. On how to not drink during a pandemic, there was a fair bit of <laughs> a fair bit of that on display during your session.
0: <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs>
1: Now, I yeah, think we should say no. It
0: was really good.
1: We should say so. I think the sessions won't be available online. Obviously, it's one of those things where you have to sort of uh, be be part of on the day. But we can say there there will be sort of another one coming up in a little while, Lisa.
0: Yeah, we're thinking of having another one. That one seemed to go down well. People wanted to do it, and it's lots of topics that we need to explore. Because I just heard on the ABC News that you know, it's considered that women are doing most of the additional work during COVID-19 in households, you know, in homes. Now, I'm sure it's not like that with you and Claire, um, Liam, but um, sorry, with you and your wife, but um, I think in a lot of homes, women are doing a much bigger share of the additional work that COVID has brought us all.
1: Well, I think I was also reading, I uh, can't remember where today, it might be one of the things we'll link to today, but that women have also borne the brunt of the employment cost. So in terms of lost jobs, they've, um, it's mostly been women as well. Yeah. 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 What a shock. We need to do some work there another conference should sort that out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So let's move on to the main topic for tonight. So uh, we should say, look, we know we're probably approaching fatigue with COVID related episodes, but it obviously is the big the big talking point in the sector at the moment. So we want to make sure we're still talking about um, those things. But I think we want to set our sights to this episode after the crisis. So what's going to happen once we return to you know some sort of measure of normality who knows when that will be and, and and indeed if that is what we will return to i want to do a bit of scene setting first so we want to talk about sort of what the current situation is and then really quickly what the possible outcomes are after 28th of june which is the sort of cut off for the the initial cut off for the early education relief package unless uh, the minister dantean chooses to extend it so um So, at the moment, obviously, what we're seeing, as I sort of said in the intro, is that the childcare subsidy system has been switched off and services are now running from two major sources of funding. So, the early education relief package, which is 50% of the revenue a particular service received uh, in the last uh, week of February, and JobKeeper, so $1,500 per eligible worker. So that's so the the sector is essentially up and running, and the and we're recording this on a Tuesday night, and Lisa and I I think both caught the the majority of Parliament, which had a pretty big uh, time spent on early education. And I think I heard the government say uh, over and over again that ninety eight percent of the sector has remained open. So obviously we're seeing that this combination of funding is at least keeping services open, but there's obviously a big question about whether they they're operating at their normal levels or whether they're able to take on. New enrollments, but in in as broader terms as we can say that that's where we're at at the moment. Um, we're going to come back, I think, to some of the challenges we've seen, and particularly, I don't know, Lisa, how you describe it—the you know, very emotional and 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 uh, um, you know very fraught reaction we've seen from large parts of the sector about this funding.
0: Yeah, it's.
1: I'm puzzled, Liam. I'm really puzzled. Yeah, well, let's park um, that. We're gonna. I think we're gonna. We're gonna come back to that in a sec. But yeah, let's have a think about what the the possible outcomes of this are. So the government have been really clear that they're seeing this as short term funding to stop the sector falling over. And I think, like, we do need to say that 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 has happened. So we the the sector was approaching a point where we were going to see huge parts, huge services, huge organisations, you know, literally have to close up. Door that hasn't happened. So I guess the possible outcomes we can see are, you know, possible outcome one is that this funding is extended beyond June. So when the funding was initially announced, there was a, uh, it was built in that after um, three months, it, the minister could extend it for another three months. So it could go up to September. Uh, I think we think that's unlikely, given how well Australia. No, I'm, oh. I'm,
0: yeah, I know. A few days ago, I was thinking that, but after watching Dan Tahayan talk in Parliament today. Um, I'm and uh, you know hearing a few things that the department are talking about. I think there's some recognition that you can't just go, okay, we'll pull back the old funding system
1: uh-huh.
0: in June and continue. Um, I think they're talking about the fact that there might need to be a transitional phase of some sort.
1: Interesting. Well, let's come back to that point, too. We've now got two points yep. to pick up, Lisa. See, Leanne's not here to keep us on track. So we're already spiraling up, but let's come <laughs> back. So let, 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 let me run through these a bit quicker. So outcome one is it's extended, it's extended until September. Possible outcome number 2 is that free early education is kept permanently. That Yay! wouldn't that be amazing. Uh, possible outcome 3 I guess is that we have sort of somewhere between the two. So we have a new model which is not free ECEC but is also not the um, back going back to the old system and there's some sort of, you know, sim- maybe simpler version of the childcare subsidy system that is easier for people to access and is focused on getting more people back to work. And then the sort of last possible outcome will be just basically a return to business as usual. Now, essentially, when we were planning this episode, Lisa, yeah, we were we were talking about so the discussion was going to be the assumption that the government will attempt to return to business as usual, so back to to CCCS. So, and
0: look, I still think they will, but I think that I think that there'll be acknowledgement from them that you can't just go straight back to that. And so it might be CCS plus some other funding.
1: Or... Interesting. Well, I think because the other thing, so obviously the other bit of context at the moment is that the first four weeks of that funding have passed and the government have committed to doing a review of the, the And fee it's
0: package. on Dan's desk. It's
1: on his desk as we record this. So as this comes out on Friday, we may know uh, that Dan has picked it up and had a leaf through it and has shared some tidbits with us. So apologies if you're listening to this on Friday, uh, the reviews come out after we're recording this on Tuesday and we can't and we're not talking about it. But um, what that review is surely there is like. the
0: possibility we will never get to see the review mm.
1: as well. Well, yes, yeah, sorry, I should be thinking this is the government. Of course, that's entirely mm-hmm. possible. But the review is likely to say that there's been issues in particular. Parts with the rollout of the subsidy, which is meant with sorry, with the rollout of the relief package, which has meant that it maybe hasn't had the full effect they wanted, and they may need to see it in place for a while longer to make sure that services are kept stable for a longer period of time.
0: No, I'm not sure that the review will say that because it was an internal review, wasn't it?
1: Well, I think so, but I, but the, I mean, the department must be hearing everything we're hearing about specific services. Um, having particular issues with managing with the funding?
0: I think they must be, but I don't think that they're um, taking responsibility for that as a consequence of program design. I think they're just saying, you know, yes, lots of people are complaining about it, but that's what, Yeah, the (laughs) supplementary
1: funding is available for. Yeah, well, that might be a good segue to go into, um, I guess, the first thing I want us to talk about. So before we sort of talk about what what advocates should be doing post the relief package or post COVID-19, I want to spend a bit of time just thinking about why the current funding package and why the current you know, sort of funding deal for services has been so, I think I've used the word fraught, but there's been, I I struggled to come up with a good word. But, you know, Lisa, you and I are both pretty active on social media, you more than me. And we've seen some pretty angry, uh, frustrated, and and really uh, very, you know, difficult, I think, responses from people who have seen this funding as incredibly detrimental to them and their services, who have claimed it's it's ridiculously unfair and is not allowing them to operate. Um, I think one of the things we wanted to discuss tonight is so obviously for for regular listeners of the podcast, if you've somehow stuck around for 825 episodes, if you go back about 100 episodes, we were on a weekly basis sort of smashing the federal government about the Jobs for Families package. So I think people have been... Surprise that you and i have been broadly supportive of this package so I, I i guess we wanted to maybe take this opportunity to talk about why and i don't know whether i wanted to turn it to you lisa because i think you've also copped you you spent a lot of your online time um trying to talk through the complexity of the package and actually talking with you know educators and directors and service providers around what the package means so I mean, are you able to sort of summarise, I guess, why that people might be confused as to why we've, you know, had, yeah. had a go I at mean, the government before but sort of said, look, this package is doing what it needs it. to do. Well, I think um, whether we support it or not, but whether it's it's what's in place and it and it can and will work in some places.
0: Look, yeah, on paper, the package looks quite good, you yeah? um, know. You had a sector that were losing um, lots of enrolments They couldn't survive without the enrolment. So instead of making it you only get paid for people that are enrolled at your centre, instead they chose a reference week and gave us 50% of the funding for that reference week and um, also the JobKeeper package. And I think there lay a lot of the problems. It's complex. It's complex beyond belief. Um, People heard the 50% and thought they were only getting 50% of their funding. They weren't factoring in the JobKeeper. And because of the delay before they actually got JobKeeper, that was, you know, that's really only started rolling in the last few days for a lot of services. So, you know, that's hard. They didn't take into account the other um, subsidies that were available such as the um, uh, cash boosts for employers, it was all just very complicated. And I think what you saw was a lot of the services, it affected different service types differently. If we look at the centre-based services, the services that were most able to cope with it, were the ones with some cash reserves with um, enough people who could work their way through the complications of it um, and that had a lot of employees that were eligible for JobKeeper, so a lot of permanent employees. I'd love to do a kind of a a bit of a um, look at ratings of services and their capacity to survive under this new system because I suspect it's some of those more highly rated services. God, as I say that, I can imagine the out, out, cry that's going to come with that phrase, but I suspect it's some of the more highly rated services that had a lot of long-term permanent staff did better than those with a lot of casuals and a lot of... Um, overseas uh, visa, uh, staff on visas. Um, That said, there was huge groups of people that the model didn't work for. Um, Family daycare as a whole, it didn't work for because they had yet to see the drop in um, attendances that happened in centre-based services Family daycare also because in a lot of states it works on a model where uh, family daycare educators are independent contractors so they run their own businesses. And it's it's been shocking to me how bad a system that is for those women. They're sold, oh, look at the benefits of this, you can set up your own business, but... As anyone that runs a business knows, and especially a business reliant on government funding knows, there's no guarantee that funding is always going to be there, and there's no guarantee that you're always going to make a profit. But the way the family daycare business has been sold to educators is not, there's not that awareness that it's that not. Businesses don't make profit all the time and the margins are so small for those educators that really they're just surviving week to week and so being told they would only get 50% of their income, if that, because services also had to survive off that money and um, they would – have to wait to get JobKeeper, that was just impossible. In-home care was works on a similar model and that um, had the same sorts of problems. And then there was all the bunches of services that, you know, like council services, services run by large um, charities or churches like Uniting Care that weren't eligible for JobKeeper for whom it didn't work at all. So there was, yeah, lots of groups that it didn't work for and what the government should have done is had a really good backup bundle of funding to fund those services that it didn't work for but they don't seem to have, they seem to be busy rejecting services applications for extraordinary circumstances funding and have made the extraordinary circumstances funding so narrow that nobody can get access to
1: it. What I find, I think the I, I, the people i have spoken to who have been maybe um, who have been far more diplomatic with me i will say but who have who have been surprised given you know well, but, but during jobs for Fam, I said well but that's that's different that was the amount of time the government had to think through that policy for the sector to respond to it and for policy to be done a lot better was different this you know we were literally talking about a, a global pandemic that was about to shut services. So is the policy perfect? No, and I don't think anyone has claimed this policy is perfect. I don't even think the government has claimed this policy is perfect, but it was developed quite quickly and it has had you know the immediate effect of ensuring that you know the majority of services have been able to stay open. Now, the, the issue, I think, and the reason I think there's been such a, look, I might keep using that word, fraught reaction, is that the diff- there's a difference between a very quick policy design and then the implementation. So the overall policy is... Again, okay, not perfect and not, not even great, but probably, you know, getting to a C minus or a B plus. But the government's just implementation of it. seems they have not been flexible enough in terms of identifying people who would fall out of the net and providing quicker support. The their approach to supplementary funding, I just cannot wrap my head around. I don't know why.
0: There isn't one. There
1: isn't one. Well, beyond. The, I, I, my, my fear is that particularly in the department, there's now a culture where they just assume that most of the sector is out to rot the system. And that's the lens they apply to anything that comes through. And that's really disappointing if that's true. So I think that and. And you and I have both been public about being frustrated with the government around that, but we need to remember that this was always going to be a short-term crisis resolution to... Or not not even a resolution, but a way of keeping services afloat. Um, and that, as we've been really clear, this is the, the early education sector is not the only sector being dramatically affected by what's happening here.
0: I know. And we got a rescue package, yep. for God's sake. And that's... Mm-hmm. Like, I was absolutely shocked at how quickly they responded to our calls for for relief you know like they got it they did something immediately
1: yeah and, the, and and one of the frustrations I've seen for me at least is that the the automatic assumption amongst some parts of you know the the, the lefties I hang out with and is, uh, that I hang out with and talk to is that you know anything this government does is bad. And anything the other side does is good, which is just not true. Oh. And, you know... It, My it...
0: God, you just have to look at the fact that we didn't bloody die of COVID-19 or haven't died yet of it, you yeah. know, in huge numbers to say they've d- yeah. done something good.
1: Yeah, so I think you know the, for, for for the two we you know not to speak for both of us, Lisa, But uh, I think the think what we're saying is this is a very very different situation than than the Jobs for Families package. That it is it was a policy that was designed very very quickly, and we we wish and hope the government does a far better job in, in implementing it. And hopefully the review will maybe go some way to doing that. But the other thing I wanted to say here as well is it's I one of the lines I've noticed you know in in social media and in some of the Advocacy against this package is the, you know, it's not free, I'll say childcare because that's what's being put out there, but it's the not free childcare line. That really bugs me because it is free. Like families are not being charged for their children's early education enrolment, and that to me as an advocate is critically important. The policy may not be great, and it and it can be done better, but we should not forget who this is really about, which is about children's access to early education. So yes, let's advocate for our own services and make sure we can do that thing, but let's not forget that we are still in the midst of you know no child being charged to walk into an early education service, and we. We should, we should not be forgetting that. So the it's not free childcare, that really bugs me, you know, and, and I wish that would stop because the argument needs to be it's great, it's free. You need to do a lot better about making sure it's fairer and that it stays.
0: Or it's free childcare and free childcare is great, but it should be better funded, free childcare. Exactly. Or even better still is... It was sold as free childcare. What it actually is is free education and care because while it's, it's there as free childcare, it um, disses the role of education early childhood teachers and disses the role of you know, what it is that services are actually providing.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. All right. Well, let's move on, I guess, to the next thing we wanted to talk about, which is given that we think the last of the outcomes we sort of talked about at the start, which is that the government will try as best it can to get back to the old childcare subsidy system as soon as possible after June. Um, Broadly, let's think about does – like, at a fundamental level, does the childcare subsidy system work in a post-COVID world? Like, is it actually – we so we we spent you know the history of this podcast talking about our own issues with the Chonger subsidy system, its complexity, how it locks people out, how it makes you know the the workforce participation aims that the government wants are more challenging, not less. So, in terms of the government wanting to go back to this, do you know? Is that actually you know feasible? Is that something that you know at a at a really big level can can it be done?
0: No, I don't think it can. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> why? Because. Look, I think that primarily we're going to have an economy that's up the ship, right? (laughs) And linking childcare so closely to workforce participation as the activity test does, when we're going to have – you know, record unemployment levels for the conceivable future means that some children, some families are not going to be eligible for much early education and care. Okay, so what happens there? Well, it probably means that services occupancy is going to drop dramatically. And we know that you really need to have occupancy above 80 or even better above 90% to actually make money in this sector or to stay afloat. And so if our occupancy levels are going down, then either large chains of childcare centres, I'm particularly looking at G8, um, and possibly even good start, but good start. Apparently, have still got very high um, uh, occupancy levels now. Are going to go under, or individual services will go under, and without a package to protect them, then we're going to lose those services for good.
1: I think that's a really good fundamental point. I think I get a bit lost sometimes in thinking about the going back to the CCS system at a really broad level around um, you know whether it's fair, whether it's unfair, whether the government will worry about the complexity. But I think you make the really good point, Lisa, that just at a structural level, the the economy is not going to suddenly, uh, or the work you know the workforce in particular right, around Australia is not going to suddenly be back where it was in February. So the amount of people who will be able to attend centres. It just won't be the same. So the system that was set up for a particular way that the Australian economy worked with a particular number of people generally accessing the economy, that's just not going to be, you know, that's not going to suddenly be back in place on June 29.
0: Yeah, so you could say, okay, they'll, you know, what about if they continue CCS without um, having the activity test? And I think... ECA is um, arguing for both a loosening of the activity test and 20 hours free childcare a week, um, free early education, are arguing for. Um, but I don't think that loosening, loosening the activity test will do anything in that situation because if families are on unemployment benefits or um, – Job seeker allowance and job keeper goes, which it sounds like it will, and the job seeker uh, coronavirus supplement goes. Then those families are not going to be able to afford early education and care, even if they are eligible for it. Even you know, if they get a hundred percent CCS, then you know in Certainly in big cities, et cetera, it doesn't come anywhere near the fees. So, you yeah, know, it's not going to work.
1: No. And I think, you know, even though I think your your perspective is, is absolutely right, I do think there's a point here where the government, and it was interesting, I heard flashes of this in Parliament today, so on the Tuesday we we're recording this, where, you know, more and more... Government MPs are lining up to to say how complex this system is, and it kind of makes me want to yank my hair out because I was like, "You, you desired this system. You could have you could have made it simpler." So, I do think they've been stung or they've been surprised by just how complex the system they've got is. They've been frustrated and annoyed that it's required. So much craziness to kind of sort it out. I part of me does think that although their huge instinct will be to go, can we just go back to how it was before? Part of them also won't want to be in this position again. They don't want to have to try and fix up a you know crazy complex system. So there must be some push, you know, even if it's at a even if the even if the Department of Education are largely going, you all well, look it's complex, but we know it. So can you not touch it, please? I think at a ministerial and a government level, they they will want to say we need to make this simpler. This is just too ridiculous.
0: Look, I th- I, you would hope so, but what I heard them arguing in Parliament today, they're arguing about this stupid po- point. They're ar- arguing about uh, purely on party lines where the ALP was saying this is costing less than what they'd normally fund on childcare and the... the um, Coalition was arguing, no, it's not, and the department has backed us up because if you factor in JobKeeper as well, then maybe it's costing around the same or certainly not costing less. And it just struck me to be such a stupid argument that that was the focus of all their arguments. The ALP also tried to pull in a lot of there's so many systems,
1: uh,
0: people being left out because of this, In particular, they were talking about not just the services but parents that, um, like especially people on maternity leave, uh, trying to get back into or get into the education care system and services were saying, you know, that they couldn't take them because there was no economic incentive for them to have another child, especially not when they were trying to socially distance. So... It, I've forgotten what you ask, Liam, but um, it's, yeah, like, uh, will they, they don't seem to be looking at the complexity of it at all. That seems to be not the issue. Um, the issue is, well, we have something put in that seems to have taken us a long time to design and we've got the computer system to run, so why wouldn't we go back to that? And one of the things that... um, Look, I'm not even going to say this diplomatically. I thought about it for a minute, but Leanne's not on, so I'll just say it. We have a bunch of bureaucrats in charge of our sector that have not been in their position long, that do not know a lot about education and care and do not know a lot about the complexity of the system. That said, I think they got their heads around it very rapidly and came up with a very you know, a very reasonable system given the amount of time they had to do it. The people that set up um, the childcare subsidy system from a bureaucratic level have mostly moved on after that so the ones that are there have inherited this system it's the only way they know of funding education and care they don't can't they don't know enough to conceive of another way of doing it so the push would have to come from the politicians rather than the department to change it It'd have to be the politicians saying, this is just nuts, you know. Like, we're sick of hearing about people in our electorate that can't get into education and care. We're sick of, um, you know, there's a possibility that we're going to have to, you know, get everyone to self-isolate again and, you know, we don't want to have to go through that with childcare again, you know. So... Are they likely to do that? Mm, I don't think so i don't I think the the politicians want to you know like Scott Morrison wants to snap back. you know, I don't think they're looking at it as an opportunity make like societal change. They're looking at it again as a chance to put into place their um, you know, their primary viewpoints about lifters and leaners and, you know, the supremacy of the market system for solving all woes,
1: mm. which is
0: quite interesting because in our sector it's kind of often been the fact that we are a market system that's caused a lot of the woes here.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was interesting hearing one of the Liberal MPs he quickly pivoted to praising the private businesses, but he did say one of the big challenges about fixing the sector is the amount of private businesses in it anyway. Yeah. This, this this to me highlights one of the fundamental issues with the childcare subsidy that I don't know if we ever sort of really hit on to any great degree when it was being implemented, but it's the, the, the fundamental central issues that the work activity test as the central part of it, there are arguments that are both for and against it, leading to workforce participation. So there are arguments for. So. So one of the when we're going to talk a bit about, about this in a little bit when we talk about advocating after this. So we're going to be there's going to be an interesting dilemma for advocates where do we double down on the economic argument? Is there's probably going to be no better time to make the economic argument. We've been making the children's rights argument for a long period of time. We we don't know if that cuts through. Maybe it does after a long period of time, but will be there will be a huge pressure and a huge incentive I think for advocates such as ourselves to you know be thinking far more about workforce participation and economic arguments. Now, the the problem is the argument around the activity test can be made both ways. So tightening, the you can see government MPs going, well, let's tighten the activity test. Let's put societal pressure on people to return to work by tightening the activity test i can absolutely see that argument being made at government levels and then there's the obvious arguments around loosening the activity test which will encourage more people to take you know risks around businesses or or if they can get you know cheaper access to early education they're far more likely to be to be able to go out and you know find a role but that you know that that's always struck me as a really centrally difficult part of the childcare subsidy test but i think it's going to be one of the challenges if we're looking at advocating we need to be careful that we're not sort of saying well you know, yes, we need more workers accessing ECEC, so let's actually tighten the work activity test. Yes. <laughs> yep.
0: I'm just getting really depressed here.
1: <laughs> well, let's let's segue into something we're probably gonna have more fun talking Look, about. Look,
0: just just I think, you know, I'm not sure if if the economic argument is where we where we need to go. I think Like To win the issue of free education and care, we need parents demanding it. And I think parents have, for the most part, understood how important educators are to their family through the process of not having them, through the process of trying to self-school and, you know, self-early educate and just having their children under their feet while they've been trying to work from home, I think they're a lot more likely to hear an argument that says early educators are paid really badly, childcare is too expensive and yet we spend a lot of a lot of taxpayer money on it. Now is the time to change it to a a simpler system whereby services are funded directly rather than families and all education care remains free for families.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, we've segued into you know the next discussion, point, which is you know before I got to do a nice introduction to it, Lisa. But you've you've skated oh, us right into it. No, to- totally okay, Lisa. So I think you're right. Those families, you know, are going to be the corner the, the the cornerstone of this for me. And you know, if we're talking about the advocacy strategies, so let's assume the advocacy goal is free early education, but you know, in a far better. You know, it's funded a policy sense that isn't you know policy in a crisis that's considered well thought out, either building on the current policy or you know amending the the CCS or whatever. The advocacy strategies we need to get free ECC. I mean, the, as you said, the the absolute no brainer first cab off the rank has to be families. I look, at the, Lisa, I think you put it in a really nice way, which is around the relationship between the service and educators. I'm going to be even blunter. How many families are seriously going to get to mid June and go, gee, I can't wait to go back to paying for Early education. Thank God the government <laughs> yeah. put. Thank Thank God the government put in that. We we're really grateful to the government that they had the relief package, and we will happily line up to have our accounts direct debited every fortnight. That is staggeringly unlikely. But the problem is for the sector we have a really limited time to sort of mobilise that stuff. So, you know, I can talk as as an organisation we're working with, uh, sorry, the organisation I'm working with, you know, we're having discussions now about how we start communicating to families around our advocacy, how we would like families involved in advocacy, because this is, you know, we are, the clock is ticking on this. Like the the, the funding could run out the 28th of June and there could be a lot of grumbling, but the government could get away with just putting it back in. It, It hasn't embedded in. I think I, I think one of the reasons the government doesn't want to go past not- three months, if they go for six months, I think the chances of going back are almost uh, dropped down to, you know, less than 50%. Shh, shh,
0: don't tell them that. Shh, <laughs> don't tell them that, Liam.
1: So we have to mobilise families now. We actually have to think about how do we, and the sector has traditionally not done this well because families have been customers. There's always been a really tricky grey area here in our advocacy because families are customers. Because of how the market, how the system's set up, I hate thinking of the families I work with as customers, but that's the system I work in. So how we use this very brief period of time where they're not paying for the service they're receiving to go, we actually need to work together on this to, to make sure this is extended.
0: But Liam, half of the sector doesn't appear to think that it's a it's a goal that we should be arguing for.
1: Yes, but. We don't need the like this is, at least you've run, you've run and won a lot of advocacy campaigns. You don't necessarily need, you know, greater than 50% of people on board to have the advocacy wins. You just need to have a really clear message and you need to have people that the government will listen to. The, you know, the government, If if there's a horde of families screaming at them, they're not likely to ignore them. They might not get everything we want, but they're not likely to ignore them.
0: That's true, but... Even ECA isn't arguing for free early education and care. They're saying for free 20 hours of early education and care. The people on Facebook that are yelling at me at the moment are are saying nobody wants free free childcare, you know, like we can't wait to go back to paid childcare. A lot of parents are saying... I'd much rather pay for childcare because otherwise it comes out of my poor educators or my poor services hide.
1: Yeah, see, Lisa, I think you're sneaking into our next session, which is what are the roadblocks. But let's, but we can we can get into that in a sec. But the, <laughs> but I think we, we would have to be in agreement that that's that's going to be a huge, you know, part. You know, if advocacy is successful in this space, that it's probably going to have to start, you know, an end with with families who are at the end of the day, you know, the the at the pivotal point between. You know children and services
0: yeah i think i agree and i think capitalizing on families
1: you know liking
0: for getting stuff for free and liking feeling positive about the early education and care sector at the moment is something that we definitely have to do.
1: Yeah. And I guess the only recommendation I can give there to advocates, so if you're in a service, and particularly if you're in, you know, a position of influence and responsibility at the service, is to, you know, have those conversations with families now, whether they're by, you know, the email communication you do or in their discussions, you know, at the door with families, that you know, the way we've been communicating it is saying we think it's great. The families aren't paying for early education. We've been advocating for that for a long time. We're really grateful. Does it come with some issues? Yes. You know, is our CFO you know, pulling her hair out some days? Yes. But... This is a really great outcome for children. We are going to be you know writing to the Minister for Education, um, asking that it is at least extended while you know a longer roadmap is developed to this being a permanent thing in Australia, and we would love your help to do that. I think it's a great starting point for building that communication with families, being honest about the challenges, but also saying you know what a great moment for families and children and the sector that it is you know that, that you're not paying and we're not having to chase up you know invoices and and debts. Um, so I'd I'd really recommend that even if it's just conversations that you're talking with families around that, hey, this is due to end on twenty eighth of June. What do you think? We we agree with you that we don't think it, that we should end, and we'd love to you know you know get you to join us in our you know email to you know uh, Minister Tien. For sure. Yeah, and I think really quickly as well, I, I touched on this before, so we probably don't need to go into it again. But I th- I'm I'm the I am I am personally as an advocate finding the the economic you know, workforce participation angle um, difficult to manage. And I'm still thinking about how I manage that because I think, like I said, there's probably going to be no better time to make the economic argument for early education. But I really take on board the commentary of people like Eva Cox who's saying this shouldn't be about economic arguments, that we need to be really careful we don't fall into the trap of only arguing for things because they have a particular economic benefit. We need to remember this is about children and their right to access to early education. So I don't think I have a solution there. Maybe maybe you have some thoughts on that, Lisa, but I think that's a that's a big challenge.
0: Well, it's... Yeah, one of the things that shocked me in all of this was how quickly the government reduced even school education to childminding. And in the sense that we need our schools to be open. And they're still saying this. They're still putting pressure on the states that haven't got fully open schools because they see it as a roadblock to economic development. This
1: is classic, be careful what you wish for. We've been asked to be treated with the same level of respect as you know primary and secondary schools for <laughs> decades, and we got our wish. So this is be careful what you wish for.
0: Yeah. One of the things that um, I was really aware today, just talking about advocacy and advocacy mechanisms was how many of the ALP um, politicians got up and spoke passionate... Oh, obviously, it was all pre ranged but spoke passionately about emails and letters they'd gotten from services and families in their electorate. And I think that they were pounded by services about the failings of this program. And I'd just like to point out that, you know, like... You've got a uh, – where did I say this recently? Did I say this on the last issue of the podcast or maybe I said it somewhere else? But, you know, if you've got a hand-washing station, put next to the hand-washing station a writing to your MP station and get people to come in, wash their hands, write a quick letter to to the local MP, have, you know, the addresses and everything there, get them to do it in hand because it means so much more and have envelopes. You know, addressed that they can shove it into straight away.
1: Yeah, old school advocacy.
0: Did I suggest that on the last.
1: Not that I remember, okay. Lisa, but you know, I, I okay. once I've listened to them three times to edit them and produce them, I tend to forget them. So who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I can't keep them all in my head. All right, well, let's get to the bit you've been itching to get to, Lisa. You, you say you're depressed about it, you're secretly love. This is what we love talking about. So what? <laughs> what are the roadblocks to this? So we know there are there, there are going to be some. This is you know this is we're talking about things that are moving incredibly quickly and that advocates are having to respond incredibly quickly. So. I guess, what are the roadblocks? But to make make sure we're not remaining too pessimistic, are there ways we can overcome those obstacles?
0: Do you know what I think the biggest roadblock is? It's lack of imagination, do you know, and that's by our politicians and by our sector. Everyone is so addicted to thinking in small things.
1: Being you know? reasonable.
0: Yeah, and, and presenting strategies that might get up you yeah, know, like, this isn't the time for this. We've just gone through an absolute world-changing thing. Everything is on the table as far as I'm concerned. If we do not come out of this and notice that, oh, we actually need some parks in our city so that when we lock down our people, they've got somewhere to walk or hmm, maybe, you know, um, uh, we need – to have bicycles so that people can get places rather than, you know, um, being on in polluting cars. You know, you can't help but go outside and go, the air is cleaner because there's not as many cars driving around. So if we can do things like that as a result of the pandemic, why can't we say, gee, it would be really good if children in this country got a free early education?
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I look. I entirely agree, Lisa. Some of this is just around inspiring people. Like there is a point of advocacy which is around inspiring people. You know, break. You know, p- picking a particular number of hours or you know fiddling with the current system does not inspire me one jot, and I don't think it inspires that many people. <laughs> um, but this, as you said, we, this, this is. We talk about once-in-generation things all the time. This, this is it. Like you know, a global pandemic. This is not something that's going to come around every few years. God, we hope, mind you. Now I've said that. I'm knocking on my desk as we speak. Everyone, I promise. But if we can't go, do you know what? Let's really think about this. Even if you just look at the media, we'll have a, we'll have links to a whole bunch of articles. There is more discussion right now about free early education that isn't including words like communist and socialist takeovers of children's lives than have ever been seen in this country. The time before this is a live issue in this country, and if we don't seize it, and it say- is.
0: But Liam, we don't know what we're asking for. How would you do it? Will
1: you put me on the spot. I'm not a well. Look, I. It, it, it,
0: I know, but if you and I don't know when this is, you know, our lifeblood and what we spend a large part of our, uh, you know, waking time thinking about, then how can anyone? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah.
1: Well, there, there are models for this. We've, we've seen this. You know, Price, Price Waterhouse Coopers have, have put out stuff. This is that that argument that well, you know, there isn't a specific detail plan for it. We didn't, we didn't agree with that doing the Jobs for Families package, and I don't agree with that now. That can be developed. We have, we're currently in a system where edu- early education is free. So the argument that it can't be done is that that's a nonsense to me. Like, increase the current funding amount to one hundred percent. Like, uh, that at least would, you know, get you 85% of the way there and fix the rest of the stuff as we go along. Like, this is stuff where we have to be put I I, I've always fundamentally disagreed, and people get really cranky and cross with me about this, is that, you know, advocates for a particular goal have to outline every single, you know, dot point of the roadmap to get there. I I just don't agree with that. I don't
0: think they do, but I think they need to have a bit of a – a bit of a thing. So are we talking about nationalising childcare? Are we talking... To- Sorry, early education. I've not seen that
1: word childcare so many <laughs> I times. Know, that- I know. It's losing all meaning.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Are we talking about... Like, raising funding to 100% doesn't count because that still doesn't take up the you know, the proportion that was being paid by parents. Are we talking about raising funding to 150% of CCS? Are we talking about, you know, having a um, model where all wages and a reasonable proportion of, of, you know, rental properties, et are taken into account? Like, you know, do you yeah. know what I'm...
1: Look, I think uh, my perspective would be is that you would be – the and what you would be asking for – and look, and I, I, I say this with no hypocrisy. This is what we're going to be talking with families about, the organisation I work with, is that you would be extending the current arrangements for you know, a period of time, fixing the current arrangements as well, so that they've, they've caught people who are falling out of the net, that the sector is supported more than it is at the moment. And you use that to then develop a policy which is – you know free universal access to early education that might take six months that might take 12 months but none of that's unachievable and whether you need to, and there, there are ways of doing it without going to steps. Obviously, I would like to see the sector nationalised. That seems, you know, even even in this, you know, environment, it's unlikely that will happen soon. But it certainly shouldn't be off the table as a discussion point. And it was interesting hearing, you know, liberal MPs, you know, pointing out that one of the challenges with the the design of this package was the private business nature of you know huge swathes of the sector. So they know that's an issue. So. You know that there are, but we should be we should be aiming for the sky in terms of our advocacy. Because then, if we if we don't get everything we want, at least we're going to be you know far far further ahead than we are now.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. I can't win you
1: over, Lisa. We're in trouble.
0: (coughs) You almost did then, yeah. But I just look at it. Be a lot easier to get parents on board if there was a. Yeah, if there was just a a clear a clear route, yeah, like if we at
1: least said, I don't think parents care, Lisa. I like, I, I, why would they care? They, they they just don't want to pay. And I, and I agree with them, they shouldn't be like I. I. I, I I'm, so I'm not trying to be facetious here. I don't think they care what the details of it are. Do they?
0: Yeah, no. You pro. Yep, yeah, I'll buy that. They don't.
1: Yep. <laughs> I, I, I don't think they do. I think if you basically said, look, at the moment, they're not paying. So whether they know the ins and outs of whether it's a perfect system or not, I think they're probably beyond them. But they know they're not paying at the moment. So they know in Australia it is possible to not pay for their early education enrolments. So the argument for me is relatively simple around saying, wouldn't it be great if we kept that past June 28th? And then it's for the government to figure that out, how that works. And that's for the, the bureaucrats in the Department of Education
0: the ones that have come up with this wonderful system.
1: I have a feeling I'm going to hear the word naive and Liam in the same <laughs> sentence for quite a while after this episode is released. I, I cannot wait. <laughs> um, the other the other thing I wanted to raise is I think, uh, yeah, this needing to be visionary, I think, is a roadblock. I think there is obviously a roadblock within, you know, we have a conservative government in place. We still have you know, a fractured sector in terms of what you know, any sort of united advocacy would look like. But I think one of the other points I want to be really clear about is that the, you know, the workforce is, is still remains a huge issue. The workforce is still underpaid, undervalued, not receiving professional development. So if we were looking at a move to you know, a far more uh, you know, fair and equitable and socially just sector that had more children in it, the, Australia just doesn't have the workforce at the moment to support that, I think.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: Yeah, so we would have and to that, be looking at wage subsidies, we would have to be looking at funded professional development and we would have to be looking at, you know, a dramatic change to how educators are valued.
0: Yep. And I think we're on the cusp of that last
1: one now. Oh, really? Do you Yeah.
0: I, well, I just think that families at least are valuing what educators... I heard of a service the other day that tried to not... Do their Zoom meeting because they were getting, you know, more children back, and the families that weren't attending were horrified. Even though <laughs> it a was riot. just <laughs> one day a week Zoom meeting that their wow. child was attending, they that was such an important time for that family in lockdown that they really needed and wanted it.
1: Wow! Yeah, look at look. I think hopefully we say this enough on this podcast that you know educators out there, you know, no one trusts this, but you know, the hats off to to educators during this time. You know, I'm I'm lucky I get to sit in my office and stew about policy and you know and and you know think about that big picture stuff. But you know, educators having to come into work every day, work with children who know there's huge changes going on in our society right now. Are probably anxious about them. Are probably worried. You know, their parents are as well. You know, educators. You know, do an incredible job on any on any given day, but I think we can't underestimate how hard they've been working during this time. And, and somehow, I don't think governments have got that. Like when Scott Morrison can put out a
0: a roadmap that you know for the next three stages that talks about states deciding when childcare centres will come back, I'm going, hang on, mate. You know, they've been attending this whole time. You know. And, like, there was acknowledge of that in Parliament at the moment that, you know, 98% of centres are still open, um, you know, but somehow it hasn't totally floated through to people's heads that what that means is educators are putting their literal life on the line every day when they go in to services, you know? like there's a lot of stuff going around about you know children not being spreaders etc but we don't know that and certainly when educators were first being asked to go into their services there was no guarantee that that was the case and we've all heard of educators who are isolating themselves from their own families who have been worried you know worried shitless that you know, going into the service was going to put their or their family's health at risk. So I think, you know, like Dan Terhan did say in Parliament today he recognised what it was that educators did and have been doing. But I think, you know, people just tend to gloss over the fact that very much like retail workers, educators have been consistently going to their jobs.
1: Yes, and it's very difficult to pay for your groceries with recognition. I hear most uh, most supermarkets won't accept recognition as, uh, as payment. Yeah, frustrating. Well, I think you know what you know. In Australia, we have asked far too much of educators and paid them far too little for decades. That has been pushed to surely its absolute limit during mm-hmm. this time. And you know, if nothing changes after this, that's a pretty sad indictment on uh, on the, on yeah on Australia. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, that seems like a bit of a downer moment to leave it at. but we will obviously be continuing to, you know, monitor what happens, and we'll be continuing to think about what advocacy looks like post, you know, or during and post COVID. You have been listening to the Early Education Show. You can find show notes and links for this episode and all our other episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. The show is hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. The music is by Jarzar at betterwithmusic.com. Please subscribe, rate and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps others find the show. Get in touch with us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. See you next time.